And I realized after the fact that it was the most satisfying artistic creation I had ever made. Getting discomfortable with excess baggage. As you probably know, if you've been living, <laughs> living, if you've been listening to this podcast before, I have a background in filmmaking. But then I had this shame breakthrough where I realized I was kind of pursuing film for all the wrong reasons. I realized that I was making films to be a filmmaker more than for the love of the actual films I was making. It was like I thought I needed to do something really high status, like be a filmmaker, in order to have value as a human being. I mean, don't get me wrong, I do love movies, and I always have. So it, it seemed like a logical choice. And I, I like writing and storytelling and acting. And so it all kind of made sense. But nonetheless, I was taking something that I had a natural passion for and channeling it more to satisfy my ego and ensure my position on the fictional hierarchy of human value more than I was using it to actually authentically satisfy my need for meaning and my need for purpose. So after I had my shame breakthrough, as you may also know from listening to the podcast, I left my old life behind and started traveling the world with a program called Remote Year. And while I was on remote year, I took a complete break from all things film. I basically didn't watch any movies. I didn't pay any attention to what films were coming out, what was winning awards at film festivals. I didn't even watch the Academy Awards, which is something that I've probably watched every single year of my life up until that point. I had no idea what films were even nominated, what films were even made, who won what, and it was so liberating. It was so liberating to discover that the bubble of filmmaking that I had been immersed in for the last decade or so was just one of many bubbles in the world that you could immerse yourself in. I encountered all kinds of people who also hadn't watched any movies and who didn't care about what had won an Oscar. And I was like, I mean, this is so naive. But I was kind of blown away to discover just how little other people actually care about movies. They're like, oh, yeah, movies, fun. Yeah, like sometimes I watch one. And I was like, what? Like, no, movies are everything. <laughs> movies are life. When you get so immersed in your career as your identity and you start to surround yourself with people who are like-minded, who are in the same profession, and you get, you know, filtered on Facebook into a certain bubble, you kind of lose track of the fact that you are part of just one small niche. And the world is full of a billion different niches, all with different interests and different obsessions and different ideas of what is valuable and, and what is important. And it's so healthy to get outside of your niche every once in a while and get some perspective that it's just a little niche. It's, it's not real. That doesn't mean I don't like films. Once I allowed myself to start watching films again at the end of my year of traveling, I still loved movies. In fact, I loved even more movies. I loved pretty much every movie I watched. My tastes, which used to be so, like, arty and discerning, had completely broadened 
such that I was able to enjoy every crappy rom-com, every stupid superhero movie. It didn't matter. I loved to just escape into the world of magical cinema land, and it did not need to be the darkest, most esoteric and challenging Austrian art film that you have ever heard of. I also took that year completely off of writing movie scripts. For the last 10 years, I had been living under this constant sense of pressure that I always needed to be writing. I needed to be writing a new script. I needed to be writing script ideas. I needed to be writing anything related to film. I needed to be, quote unquote, stacking projects so that while I was writing the final draft of one script, I was in the middle of the third draft of another script, and I was outlining a fourth script, and I was loglining a seventh script. I mean, I lost count. So it was so, it was such a relief to allow myself to just let that pressure go and realize that I might not ever make a film again. Like, maybe that isn't the right path for me. And, and to just open up my idea of what my life could be such that it could be anything. And that was also extraordinarily liberating. But then an interesting thing happened. In the second month of my year of travel, in Prague, I think it was, we had a big house party among all 50 of the travel mates that I was traveling with all year on remote year. We were all kind of just getting to know each other, but it had been a really intense, you know, first month where we really got to know each other surprisingly well because we spent every single day together. And I was chatting with a group of people at this party, and I just pointed out that one of the members of our group was basically fulfilling the role of the mother of the group. And I was like, you know, like, if we were a sitcom, she would be the mother character. And other people were like, yes, that's so true. Well, if she's the mother character in this sitcom, who am I? And I was like, oh, you, you're, you're her third daughter, the one who always feels like she's being overshadowed by the older daughters. And so she acts out and rebels. And then someone else was like, ooh, well, then who am I? And I was like, oh, you are a teacher at the high school where the mother character's kids go to school and you are the zany and hilarious math teacher, but it turns out you have a secret drinking problem. And throughout this party, the joke went on and on where we started adding more and more people to this fictional 90s sitcom in which all of us played a role. And it made for a really fun game because within each character, we were kind of able to distill the core of each person, like their essence, into a kind of cliche family sitcom character. It started with the mother and then all of her children and then her boyfriend and then her ex-husband and then her siblings and then the high school nearby with the teachers and the friends of her kids and then the neighbors and then the babysitter. And throughout that night, we got through maybe half of the 50-person group. And it was just a really (laughs) funny and memorable night. And then two or three months later, we were in Bulgaria, and we had a group talent show. And I couldn't think of any talent, so I decided that for my bit, I would finish writing all of the characters to this fictional sitcom, and I would just read them out. 
And that's exactly what I did. I just said the name of each person in our group and then gave like a one or two line bio of how their character fit into this sitcom. And it really went over so well with the group. And it actually took like 20 minutes to get through all 50 characters. But I could tell that the audience never lost interest. There was some controversy. You know, some people were like, no, I don't like that character. You got to change this. And it started to evolve. But this idea kept forming in people's minds. Like, well, you know, you have all the characters. You need to write the show. And I was like, no, no, no. I am not writing screenplays anymore. I am taking a year off from film. And anyway, that's crazy. Like, who has time for that? But the idea persisted. And it wasn't until we had a big meeting of everyone in the program. And this was months later closer to the end of our program when we were in Latin America. And a friend of mine, Fief, who I've mentioned before, was like, what if we all put money together so that AJ can take time off of his ghostwriting job to actually write the script for the fictional sitcom that we came up with? That was the moment that I was like, oh, you're, you're really serious. You, you really do want me to write this. And I went home thinking, could I actually write a sitcom pilot? Like, do do I have the ability to do that? Do I have the time? Could I make it work? And I kind of was like, no, that's crazy. But the idea kept nagging at me. And over Christmas, I started to imagine various scenarios for the sitcom. And I was like, oh, it'd be funny if this character did that. And of course, this other character would react this way. And then I had an idea for how the pilot of the sitcom would open. I was like, oh, of course, it would, it would open at the family home with the mother running around waking up all of the kids because all six of them are going to miss the bus to school. And then all of the hilarious chaos that would ensue. And once I had the opening couple of scenes, I was like, I'll just start writing that and we'll see. So when I got back to the group, we were in Colombia at this time in Bogota after my Christmas break, I just started writing the first couple of scenes. And then I started writing the next couple of scenes and then the next couple of scenes. And before I knew it, I was turning down ghostwriting jobs and I spent the entire month writing this ridiculous screenplay. And it was actually a friend of mine, Yoen, who's also a filmmaker, he suggested that the title of the sitcom should be Excess Baggage, which was very fitting because a lot of people in our group had excess baggage. And the whole concept of this mother with her, I can't even remember how many children she had. It was like six or eight or something. That was her excess baggage. It was a perfect metaphor for our group and for this sitcom. And it was a perfectly cheesy 90s sitcom name. So I had the title and I just kept writing and writing and I started to enjoy it more and more. And before I knew it, within a month, I had written a 73-page screenplay, which if you don't know, is the length of a short feature film script. Script pages are generally meant to equal about a minute of screen time per page. 
So a 73-minute script would equal to be about a 75-minute film. It's worth noting that writing an entire screenplay in a month is a pretty crazy thing to do. Other screenplays I've written, you know, you do multiple drafts. This was just a first draft, but still a first draft of a screenplay that hadn't been outlined in any way, shape, or form could take way longer than a month. But the amazing and easy thing about this script was that I knew the characters so well. I had basically spent almost a year, day in and day out, with the real people that each character was inspired by. And though the characters were, of course, kind of heightened versions of those people in ridiculous different roles in a sitcom, I could always imagine exactly what they would say and how they would react. It didn't take any planning or thinking. You just created a situation and you were like, oh, well, this person would clearly do this and that person we know would do that and this person would totally react this way. And the screenplay basically just wrote itself. And when it was done, it was the final month of our program. It was February and we were in Mexico City. And we were planning the goodbye party at various meetings. And I mentioned to the group that I had actually written this screenplay as requested for the pilot of Excess Baggage, the sitcom. And it was decided that at our final going away party, we should have a table reading. We should have everyone could sit around and read their part in a group. And I was like, you know, I don't know that we'll actually get through the whole script because it's 73 pages long. So that could take at least 73 minutes, if not longer, to read out. But we could start reading it. I'll print a couple copies and we'll start reading it. And it'll be fun, hopefully. And I started to get kind of nervous because I realized I had written it in a hurry. It was 100% a first draft. It was just like straight stream of consciousness. Some of it was quite juvenile and stupid. I was like, oh, are people going to laugh at all? Are they going to be offended? Also, I was worrying that it was a really kind of ego-driven thing, as usual, worried that my ego is just wants attention. And so I was thinking, this is going to be so obnoxious, like we're just going to spend all this time focusing on something that I did. I kind of saw it as maybe too much all about me. But people seemed excited about it. People had requested it. So I found a printer in Mexico City, and I printed a bunch of copies, and bought some highlighters, and I highlighted each person's role. And when the day of the farewell party came, it was this super fun, emotional day. We rented a villa outside of Mexico City. It had a pool. We had yearbooks made by some of the talented designers in our program, and a whole bunch of staff members came to visit that we had met over the course of the year. It was just like such a special, emotional, fun, important day. And then right before dinner, we had about half an hour, so I was like, all right, like, let's do the reading. You know, we'll, we'll just read as much as we can in half an hour. And as we started to read it, it was just this amazing bonding experience where I started to notice that it wasn't just about me. Each person reading their role kind of had their moment to shine, their moment to be funny, their moment to 
play up and make fun of themselves. And I realized that it was quite a special thing because I gave them the script in the moment. They had no idea. It was a complete cold read, as as they used to say when I was auditioning for things. If you get the script right away, it's considered a cold read. And it's considered the hardest kind of audition because you literally have no time to plan. You have no idea what you're saying. So this was a cold read with 50 people who are not actors. And I suddenly realized that I was really touched that people had the trust to go through with this, that they knew that I wasn't going to completely mock them while always, you know, (laughs) trying to make them funny and then trying to kind of lampoon everyone, including myself. And I was so impressed by how every single person totally owned their character. And we all knew each other so well at that time that there really wasn't any embarrassment. It was just like everybody was acting the part so well. And the reaction was so much better than I could have imagined. Of course, I hoped it would get some laughs, but I hadn't realized the kind of hysterical camaraderie that would be created when you got all 50 people huddled together in a tight group laughing at each other's foibles, you know, laughing at each other's heightened but kind of true characterizations in this sitcom. The other surprise I should note is that my friend Fief, who was the one who really suggested that I actually write this thing, is a singer and songwriter. So I tasked him with writing the theme song for the series, and he played it live after the first couple of scenes. And I had no idea what the song sounded like. I didn't even know the words. But right away, everyone was singing along, and it really was the perfect kind of like emotional, cheesy 90s sitcom excess baggage theme song about how much you kind of resent all these people you have to carry around with you, but then actually you realize you love them, which so perfectly encapsulated the screenplay and the whole experience of this program, Remote Year. You know, you meet these 50 strangers. Right away, you're like, who are these people? What have I gotten myself into? Everyone seems weird. I'm not sure that I like anyone. Get me out of here. But slowly but surely, you start to meet people and you start to hear their story. And everyone who went on my program had an amazing story, an amazing reason for why they left their life behind and started traveling. And once you heard someone's story about why they decided to travel the world as a nomad, you were kind of hooked. You were like, wow, cool. I like this person. Anyone who has the gumption to go on a program like Remote Year is an interesting person, an open-minded person, an adventurer. And you just kind of know that you're going to click with them on some level. And by the end of the year, I couldn't believe how people who I had judged at the beginning as not my kind of person were now 100% my favorite people. Basically, if you spend that much time with anyone, you're going to learn to love them, no matter how annoying or obnoxious or offensive they seem at first. If you get to know someone well enough, if you ask them the right questions, if you go deep enough, you are going to love and respect that person. 
And I think that probably really came through in the script because while I was making fun of everyone, I was really careful to try to give everyone their, you know, their due, their moment in the spotlight. I imagine it's a little bit like writing one of those big Avengers movies. You're like, well, okay, we need to have room for a million different characters to have their moment to shine. We also need to have room for all of those million different characters to have a story arc from beginning, middle to end that's satisfying for that character, while also having a larger beginning, middle, and ending for the entire film, for the entire story. So I was trying to weave it all together so that everybody had at least two scenes or or at least one really memorable moment and then also try to have a larger story that they all kind of mixed into and all kind of made sense and hopefully was funny. We did have to stop at one point to eat dinner, but instead of just abandoning the script, everyone was like, no, we're going to go back and we're going to finish it. And we started reading it again. And then when they were like, okay, it's dessert time, the group was like, no, we are not stopping for dessert. And we just kept reading through the script until we got to the very end. And the very last scene, I tried to find a way to have almost every single character appear and say something. And it seemed fitting as a kind of climax that I would go in a meta Charlie Kaufman type direction where the fourth wall gets broken and the characters take their own power and start writing their own ending so that I'm not the one who gets tasked with ending the film. And it was such an amazing experience. I don't want to like get all tooting my own horn here. But I had no idea that it was going to be so impactful. I was hoping it would be funny. I was hoping people would appreciate it. But I had no idea how perfect and climactic and hilarious and dizzying and connecting it would be to read this script in front of each other on the very end of our very final party in our very last month of this crazy adventurous year of travel. And I realized after the fact that it was the most satisfying artistic creation I had ever made. And that blew my mind because it was the only artistic creation really of that scope that I had ever made that had absolutely no commercial value and no commercial intention. If you were to get a hold of this script and read it, it would be complete nonsense to you. It wouldn't make sense to anyone who wasn't within our group. It had absolutely no possible potential to go on to be any kind of real sitcom or real film. And that was not the intention at all. Not only that, but I wrote it for free, and I wrote it as a joke. It, it, it had no purpose aside from amusing and celebrating a bunch of my friends. And it just it kind of blew my mind to realize that the most satisfying piece of art I had ever created was something that I created for people that I loved. I mean, that part made sense but that I didn't intend to be good, quote-unquote, or to be brilliant, quote-unquote, or to make me look 
important or special or talented. It had none of the egoistic intentions that had been feeding my actual film career. It was just like this very pure, very naively created bit of magic. I mean, not everyone's role was perfect. Some people, the character I had created for them didn't really fit, didn't really capture their essence. So, you know, the script was not perfect. And some of the jokes were stupid and some of the jokes were kind of obnoxious or offensive. I don't know. I wrote it so quickly that I just, (laughs) it was what it was. It was definitely a rough and raw first draft. But I was overwhelmed by how meaningful it was to every single person who took part in it. And it allowed each of them to be seen and celebrated for who they are in front of the whole group, one after the other, and then to see and celebrate each other person for who they are. It was just this beautiful, kind of connective, empathetic, and drunk and hilarious, unintentional gift. And I started to wonder, like, what if I could do this for a living? Like, what if there was a way where I could actually get money by getting to know interesting people and then celebrating those people by writing something just for them or just about them? I mean, how pure and wonderful an artistic process would that be? Because you know exactly who your audience is. Not only that, but you love your audience. You respect your audience. And the, the creation is directly for and about that audience. That's probably what it was like, you know, way back when we were hunter-gatherers, when we lived in tribes of 50 to 150 people, and you were the shaman, or a storyteller, or an elder, and you got to go up in front of the whole group and tell them a story, and share with them a dance, or some poetry, or a drawing. And it completely was about and for them, for that group, for their experience. And I haven't figured out exactly how I could actually do this, but it's clear to me, at least, that the ways in which art will really satisfy me is when I truly understand and know who it's for, and it is done in a kind of naive, honest, raw way where I just express something about the people that I know and respect and love, about a specific group that, that I really want to communicate with. It's not this idea of a commercial box office success where you're trying to connect with the whole world or the lowest common denominator. It's the exact opposite of that. That's what I would love to do somehow. Unbeknownst to me, on the night that we read this script of Excess Baggage, my friend Chris recorded the whole thing. I'm not going to play the entire thing for you because it won't make any sense. But I just wanted to give you a clip so that you could understand the energy in the group at that time. The sound isn't perfect. It was outside. You can't hear everyone. But I would love to leave you with the theme song from the fictional 90s sitcom Excess Baggage, as written and performed by my friend Fief. (laughs) And the title sequence. Ooh. 
Ooh. You sting Ooh. and you curse and you yell and you sweat. Oh, but when you're by my side, I don't have a single regret. Cause you try and you laugh and you learn and you care. Oh, and when nothing goes right, I know that you'll soon be there. And even when I'm on my own, with a ticket to fly to lands unknown, I know that you're still with me. Even when I don't want you to be <laughs> You're my excess baggage You're my excess baggage You're my excess baggage And I love you so Oh, you're my excess baggage You're my excess baggage You're my excess baggage And I love you so Thank you. Oh,